would invite you to turn me, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 23, where we'll pick up in verse 14, Exodus 23. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, we give you thanks, and may we long to grow in hearts of gratitude for the wonder of our salvation. As we gather in our worship services, may they serve in the lives of each one of us to stir us up toward greater zeal to you, to spur us on toward that day of final rest. May you use our time together in your word this evening toward that end. In Christ's name we pray, amen. My intent was to finish chapter 23, but just given the length of this passage, we'll just be looking at verses 14 through 19. So stand with me, if you will, and we'll read Exodus 23, 14 through 19 together. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvests, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning." The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The word of our God, you may be seated. Now, because of the intervals in our studies through the book of Exodus, I think it's important for us to be reminded of where we are in the life of Israel. Of course, the Ten Commandments, the law of God was given to God's people from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And from that point up until where we end our text tonight, this portion of God's Word is referred to as the book of the covenant. This is simply further laws that are an expansion of those Ten Commandments to help the children of Israel understand how the Word of the Lord and His commands are to be applied to everyday life. Now, this title, the book of the covenant, is not something that we ascribe to this portion of God's Word. We actually see that in chapter 24, verse 7. So, not only the Ten Commandments that would have been inscribed on the tablets of stone, but this portion of God's Word, the book of the covenant, would have been delivered to the people of Israel before the completion of the rest of the Pentateuch. Now, the book of the covenant concludes here in chapter 19, which is followed by an epilogue that we'll look at together next time. Now, though these laws of the book of the covenant may seem foreign to us, There's a principle that I hope you've been reflecting upon these last number of weeks together, and that is all of life is to be brought under the lordship of the living God. Let's keep before us this wonderful summary statement from Dr. Michael Barrett, who again will be with us next Sunday morning and evening, in which he writes that there is no part of life that is too small or too insignificant to be exempt from God-pleasing behavior. Now, that was true, of course, not just for Israel, but that's true for us as God's people today. That call to holiness of life is all-pervasive, encompassing the entire man. As God's redeemed children, we are to give our entire selves to the Lord in loving adoration and obedience. 
And so as we conclude this teaching in the book of the covenant, let's think for a moment first this evening about the nature of a promise. We'll call this our first point tonight, the nature of promises. Now, there are different ways in which we might think of that word promise and how we use it. Sometimes we use the word promise much too lightly in our conversations with others, as though there's our regular word, but when we really want someone to take us seriously, we promise that we'll do what we say. At other times, promises can seem too good to be true. You get those flyers in the mail from the local car dealership, and your name is printed along the top. You're a guaranteed winner. You promise that you will be one of those listed there who will win either $10,000 cash, a 50-inch flat-screen TV, or a free oil change. (laughs) Of course, you know what you're actually going to win. It's not really a prize at all. And while you're sitting in the service department for two hours with your free oil change, they hope that you get bored and wander the car lot and get talking to a salesman, of course. But something within you wants to believe the possibility that you could be the winner of the grand prize. But someone's got to win after all. Stranger things have happened. They promised. But usually reason wins out so you don't waste your entire day down at the car dealership to get the alleged prize. So when something seems too good to be true, you look at the source. You look at who's making the promise to you. You dismiss the flyer that comes in the mail because you know it's a marketing technique and you find them in your mailbox every few weeks. But what if it's a reliable source? What if it's a dependable promise? Even if it sounds too good to be true, you can believe because it's someone you love and someone who you know loves you and someone who has shown himself to be trustworthy. Now, that's why the teaching that we find here, anything that has to do with future promises from God, it's so important for the children of Israel to reflect upon the one who is giving those promises to them. God knows that they will have questions in the days, the weeks, and the months ahead. He knows that they will face uncertainty. He knows that they'll waver, and he knows that they will doubt, just like we do in our own Christian life. In fact, we know as we read through the following narratives through the Pentateuch that this entire generation will die in the wilderness because of their unbelief and their hardness of heart. But things would have been so much different if they had listened, if they had believed in the promises of God, if they had walked in obedience, if they trusted they could have participated in these wonderful feasts that the Lord promises to His people. But here's the amazing thing about God's promises. They do not depend upon us for their fulfillment. These promises of entering into the land of rest, these promises of feasting together with regularity do in fact come true in spite of unbelief. And so both tonight and next time when we're together, when we conclude this chapter, we'll see how these amazing promises come to fulfillment. And here, I think, is a critical point for us to reflect upon tonight, that as much as God's people struggle to believe, God will make good upon His promises. As much as we might struggle in our own lives to believe those promises of comforts, of assurance, and so forth from God's Word, we can believe because He will make good upon them. So let's think secondly this evening about the role of feasting or the purpose of feasting. And when you think of feasts, you probably think of our own Thanksgiving Day holiday, 
which is a feast that was meant in many ways to model the feasts that we read about here in the nation of Israel, a time of expression of gratitude to the Lord for His provision. Now, later on, as we move through the Pentateuch, in your own reading, you'll see that God continues to expand upon how these particular feasts are to be kept and other requirements connected to them. And what we find there is that there is a lot of travel involved as the people of God are to come together in a centralized location as a covenant community to worship the Lord through sacrifice and feasts of thanksgiving. And so this feasting is a way to celebrate God's provision. And by being told to travel, it's a reminder to them that they are a pilgrim people. Israel needs this continual reminder that they are a pilgrim people moving toward a greater place of final rest. And if we think of it like that, then in many ways, this present age that we are living in is a pilgrimage as well as we journey toward our heavenly home, that place of final rest. And so the Scriptures use this type of language to refer to us and our very identity as sojourners, wanderers, exiles, strangers in this present age. And so the things that we learn here about the pilgrimage of Israel as they move through the wilderness to the land of promise, and even as they continue to pilgrimage on these feast days, teaches us a great deal about our own earthly journey and our heavenly destination. And so these festivals would help to remind the Israelites of their very identity, that they are to live differently because they belong to the Lord God, that they are to celebrate these festivals because they are a pilgrim people moving toward a eternal and heavenly rest. Each of these festivals, which serve sort of as hinge points upon the annual calendar of the nation of Israel, in which all of life revolves around, each of these festivals has to do with joyful feasting. Now, even though we live in this time of rapid inflation, in which it seems like your food bill goes up every week when you go to Publix, we still probably take for granted the fact that if we wanted to have a feast, we could go down and celebrate and buy enough food in abundance with family or friends. But that wasn't the case for the children of Israel. Now, you might still have to spend $7 for your favorite box of cereal or $5 for your whole grain loaf of bread, but it's still there on the shelf every time you go to the store. But for Israel, if they're going to have grain, it depends upon the Lord providing the rain and the appropriate sunlight and, of course, bringing growth. And so all of life revolves around the agricultural calendar. Without a harvest, there is no life, pure and simple. And one thing that might seem fairly obvious is that it takes time to feast. When you think of a feast, you don't think about just going through the drive through and getting a burger in between appointments. It takes time to plan ahead. It takes time to travel as you gather. It takes time to prepare the various dishes that you will celebrate together. It takes time to sit and eat and to enjoy one another's fellowship. For Israel, for them to properly feast, they must trust that the Lord will provide and that He will protect 
because in many ways they're letting their guard down as they travel to these various times of feasting and give their attention to worship the Lord. And so behind every feast is an acknowledgement that the Lord provides and that he protects and that he is present with his people. And these annual feasts would help the Israelites to cultivate gratitude as well as anticipation. Gratitude because they can look back and see what the Lord has provided in terms of harvest. But anticipation because they know that something greater is still to come. So let's think about gratitude and anticipation in each of these three feasts. And this is our third point tonight. Three feasts from the Lord. Now first there's the feast of unleavened bread that we read about in verse 15. This was a feast of commemoration or a feast of remembrance of that wonderful event of God's deliverance when he brought his people out of the land of slavery, out of the house of bondage. And notice how God says here, keep this feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you in verse 15, because this isn't the first time that Israel is learning about the feast of unleavened bread. In fact, they received instruction about this particular feast all the way back in Exodus chapter 12, just before Israel left the land of Egypt. It was there that the Lord instituted the Passover celebration, which going forward was to be immediately followed by this week-long feast of unleavened bread, in which for a whole week they were not to eat bread with, wait for it, leaven, which, of course, is yeast that would cause the bread to rise. Now, according to my notes, when we looked at Exodus chapter 12, it was actually a little over two years ago. So you probably don't remember, I don't remember all that we talked about back then, but I have notes to remind me. Now, the reason for the Feast of Unleavened Bread was not only to remind Israel that they are leaving Egypt in haste, not having time, of course, for the bread to rise, but there's also a spiritual lesson for them to learn. You see, the properties of yeast are a picture of the infecting and corrupting nature of sin. The way in which yeast grows and spreads and ferments through the entire batch of dough is a picture of what sin does in the hearts of each one of us. It is always working to corrupt and spread into every part of our lives. Instead, our call is to holiness of life. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to help Israel see that they must leave behind them the idolatry of the land of Egypt and the foolishness of that former way of life, just as we are to leave behind the corruption of the flesh, what the Apostle Paul calls the old man in places like Ephesians chapter 4. Philip Ryken puts it like this, God wanted to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. And this is what the Feast of Unleavened Bread teaches us. And second, there's the Feast of Harvest, also called the Feast of Firstfruits in verse 16. Now, this is a feast that comes seven weeks after Passover in early summer. And along with all the other feasts, it is tied to the agricultural cycle. This one, namely, marks the end of the harvest, the grain harvest. 
Now it gets a little confusing because there are some other feasts that become combined with this one and there are other names that are used to refer to this feast. It's not only the feast of first fruits, but it's also called the feast of weeks. And when you move it into the New Testament, it is called Pentecost because it's 50 days after the Sabbath of Passover. Now, this is a harvest feast in which we learn in Leviticus 23, the worshiper is also to bring a sacrifice of atonement, a male lamb one year old. But they are also to bring the first fruits of their harvest as an expression of thanks and gratitude for the Lord's provision. So by bringing those first fruits, they are acknowledging that the entire harvest that they are enjoying is a provision from the Lord. It's a way to give him thanks for all that he has done while also looking ahead to the rest of the harvest season, as we'll see in a moment, and the need for the Lord to continue to provide. And that leads third to the final feast here, the Feast of Ingathering, which is exactly what it sounds like. It would fall seven months after Passover when the final crops would be harvested, vineyards and olives from the trees and so forth. It's a way to acknowledge that the Lord has been generous in His provision throughout the entire harvest season. And once that harvest is gathered, it would be a time to rest and to celebrate and give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. Now, the Feast of Ingathering is another that would last a whole week, and the people would live in makeshift booths made of leaves and branches to remind themselves of that season of pilgrimage. It would be a way to reenact that Exodus experience. And it was a good reminder to the people that just as the Lord was faithful to provide for them in the wilderness, in those harsh surroundings, certainly He will continue to provide for them to this very day. And because the children of Israel lived in these makeshift booths for an entire week, This feast is also called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles because wherever the tabernacle was located and later the permanent structure of the temple, that's where the children of Israel would travel and stay in these booths for a week as they would worship the Lord together. And so these are the three feasts that the children of Israel were to observe. And again, it formed at the core of their religious calendar. Each involved bringing sacrifices of atonement or of thanksgiving, and those offerings were to be given to the Lord. And again, wherever the tabernacle and later the temple was located, that's where the people were to go. And so what are we to make of all of these feasts? It's certainly a lot of feasting. I think we would agree that there's something special about continuing to gather together with friends and family at varying intervals throughout the year and to celebrate the Lord's goodness, expressing thankfulness for His provision and even the joy of friendship. But we want to see, fourthly tonight, that these feasts are not just about eating, but they in fact testify to God's grace. And so our fourth point this evening is feasts of grace. Yes, the Lord provides for our daily needs, and it is good for us to thank Him for His provision of daily needs, and to look to Him to continue to provide for us. But let's think about some of the gospel images that we see in these feasts. Listen to what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Do you not know 
that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so just as the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were connected to one another, notice how the Apostle Paul connects the sacrificial work of Christ to the subsequent sanctification of the believer in Christ. As you come to Jesus, you are to leave behind that sin of your old life with all of its deception and destruction. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually gives us a picture of what it means to be sanctified in the Lord Jesus. Now, the Feast of Harvest or the Feast of First Fruits reminds us of what the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, a text that Pastor McWilliams alluded to this morning, that in the resurrection of Jesus, he becomes the first fruits from the dead. His resurrection is a guarantee of the full harvest at his return. And so all of those who are in Christ will one day receive those new, glorified, resurrected bodies patterned after the resurrection body of our Savior. And the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was celebrated during the earthly ministry of Jesus in John chapter 7. On the eighth day, the final day of that feast, water was drawn from the pool of Siloam and taken up to the temple and poured upon the ground as a reminder of how the Lord provided water from the rock in the wilderness for the Israelites. And on that day, Jesus says, this is John seven thirty-seven: if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is the water of life. Jesus is the fulfillment of that festival, just as he is the fulfillment of all of these festivals. Jesus is the one who provides life in abundance. And just imagine for a moment this scene of traveling to Jerusalem, the construction of the temple, living in a makeshift booth for a week. And for the entire week, sacrifices are constantly being offered upon the altar inside the walls of the temple. From the moment you wake up in the morning, you smell the aroma of those sacrifices to the moment that you lie down to go to sleep at night. It is a constant reminder that our sin presents an ongoing problem in our relationship with God. But through the work of Jesus... There is the definitive and all-sufficient sacrifice. And so collectively, each of these feasts teach us something about the gospel. They each point to elements of what Christ has accomplished. They point to the calling of sanctification in our own lives. And they point to our hope of resurrection on that final day and the glorious feast that awaits us in the presence of our Savior, when we will finally be at rest from all of our enemies. And so now, Romans 12:1, because of God's mercy, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, as part of our spiritual worship. 
But there's one final thing to consider from verses 18 and 19 after this instruction about feasts, and that is the charge toward purity or the charge toward holiness. Let's read those two verses again. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, at first glance, this might seem like a strange way to conclude the book of the covenant. But these verses are sort of an umbrella statement for how all of life is to be given to the Lord. He is to be first. He is to be the greatest. He is to be the most important part of our lives. The temptation would be to hold back some for ourselves. For Israel, it would be a temptation to dilute the sacrifice or to leave some of the good parts for myself or to take some of the harvest but not the best to the Lord in thanksgiving. And really, we face the same temptation in our own lives. We come to the Lord with distracted minds and wandering hearts. We come with desires that are connected to this world. We come perhaps with portions of our own lives that we want to keep for ourselves. But God calls for it all without reservation and without hesitation. Remember the motto of John Calvin, holding out his heart to the Lord. He says, promptly and sincerely, I give myself to you. And there's this final word of instruction that they are not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. This final word, which is a conclusion to the book of the covenant, might seem anticlimactic and at the very least confusing to us. What are we supposed to make of this? Is this just instruction on how you're supposed to or not supposed to marinate your meat before a family gathering? We actually find this instruction not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk two other places in the Pentateuch. And so obviously it has some sort of significance in its original setting. Now, Orthodox Jews to this day take this as a dietary regulation that in some restaurants or kitchens, they actually separate cookware from dairy products and meat products, and even the utensils that are used in preparation must never touch one another. But this isn't about dietary practice, and there actually are principles that we can derive from this as well. Some biblical scholars note that this would be a pagan ritual in which the boiled milk would be scattered across the fields to try to bring a good harvest. Obviously, the Israelites are to look to God alone to provide the needed harvest, and they are to separate themselves from any type of ritual that could be confused with pagan Canaanites' worship. Verse 13 of this chapter, you might remember, you are not even to mention the names of those foreign gods upon your lips. Why not mention their names? Because they don't even exist. Verse 32, next time we'll see, you are not to make a covenant with them and their gods. Why not enter into a covenant with them? Because you would have to acknowledge their existence. The charge here is very serious, and they are to be watchful over every part of life, just as we too must be watchful to guard against idolatry. 
to resist the practices of this world as we serve God and serve Him alone. So what are some principles for application that we might take from these verses as we think about serving the Lord in our own lives? Well, these festivals that fall throughout the calendar year help to remind us that we are to offer ourselves to God continually. There is never a time in our lives in which we are not disciples of Christ Jesus. Just as Israel was to be watchful and holy to the Lord in all manner of life, we are to offer ourselves to God in righteousness from hearts of devotion. And when we read in verse 18 that the whole sacrifice should be offered to the Lord, this is to help us see that we are to offer ourselves wholeheartedly to our God and not to bring worldly practices into our worship or worldly values and priorities into our lives. And so if we were to evaluate ancient Israel, and we were to ask, well, how did they do with all of this? You know, the answer is they didn't do very well, did they? We know, of course, that they failed. And their failure pointed to the need that they had for a greater than Israel, the Lord Jesus Himself, who lived with constant gratitude toward His heavenly Father, heartfelt devotion at every point of His life, and perfect obedience in joyful holiness. And it is Jesus that gives us life, that we might have the rest and the peace and the provision of that feasting for all of eternity when He returns. And as we close, listen to these wonderful words of promise from Isaiah 25. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. And let's do just that as we sing hymn 119, to sing the almighty power of God, rejoicing in the salvation that is ours.